Never underestimate your audience. Look, you're either going to resonate or you're not. Does everybody like Jerry Seinfeld as a comedian? No. Does everybody like Robin Williams? No. I mean, a lot of people do. But I don't care whether you're a comedian or you're a stand-up or whether you're in business. It's all about finding your voice and finding your audience. As a performer, because I'm also a professional actor, it's all about finding your voice. And what we mean by finding your voice isn't the tone of your voice. It's who you are to people. How they resonate with what you're saying and what you're doing. Is it connecting? Is it landing? Are you landing with people? And you're not gonna. Welcome to the Grounded Content Podcast, where content marketing, marketing, messaging, get real and grounded, but also tactical and effective. I'm your host, Marian Abrams. Today I talked to Charlie Epstein. I don't even know how to begin to introduce this guy. So I'm gonna let the episode unfold and you can learn more about Charlie as we go along. The main thread of the conversation, the main thing we talk about is what can we, as marketers and content creators, learn from actors and stand-up comedians? It's not what I would have thought. We'll talk about how you do develop your voice, how it is that acting can teach you to be more real and more in the moment, but really, essentially, how you find your voice, that unique thing that's you. How do I know for sure that this was a good conversation? Well, Charlie got so excited several times that he was pounding on the table on his end of the interview. So, Charlie, welcome. I am so glad that Charlie Epstein has agreed to join me here on Grounded Content. We just finished an interview on his show, Yield of Dreams. I don't even know what I said. It was crazy. But we're going to try to rein things in a little bit. And we're going to talk about all the things we talk about on Grounded Content. And I have already cut you off, Charlie. So what were you going to say? No, I just wanted your listeners to make sure they go to the Yield of Dreams podcast, not for my benefit, because I think they're going to learn new things about you that you haven't disclosed before. That is 100% correct. Yeah. No, it was a really good conversation. It was a little more about me than I was fully comfortable with. But it was a great conversation. And one of the things we talked about is how I have been kind of trying to turn my own coaching around on myself. And so probably I should have been more comfortable with talking about me that much. Well, order of full disclosure right at the front end, everybody, is that I've hired <laughs> this professional, this pro, Marion, to coach me. And you should too. Thank you. I appreciate Thanks. that. Nice. Yeah. No wonder I had you on the show. So one of the things I want to talk about today with you specifically is... Why am I sitting in this field and who am I anyway? <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But your story, right? So you became successful in the financial industry, selling life insurance, but you always really wanted to be on stage. And you have also, throughout your life, continued to do stand-up. And I think you and I had a great conversation offline about how you develop that persona and how you integrate feedback. So when you're doing stand-up, how much of that is driven internally and how much of your act is driven by the feedback you're getting from the audience? That's a really good question. So it starts internally because you got to be crazy and insane to do stand-up or not. You know, it's interesting because I watch 
comedians and cars getting coffee. What I love about Jerry is his subtle arrogance and his vigilance. He's a comic who spent more time on the road than all his pals who made it, you know, Leno and Mad About You, Paul Reisner, right? Long after they made it, Jerry was still on the road, going from club to club to club with his pad of paper, really working his craft. He's a wordsmith. He's a genius wordsmith. And he's dedicated to that. And he also, with all his comedians, the last one I watched was with Har um, not Paul Harvey, who's, you know, I'm talking about the uh, African-American. He's on all the talk shows. He's got the kids, you know, what kids say, Harvey, Harvey, ah, you're not helping me out at any rate. But he talks about this with all the comedians. It's like they were asked to coach comedians. So, you know, there's these comedian boot camps. As a matter of fact, the first time I did stand up in New York in 1990, I always wanted to do it. I basically thought of myself as a stand-up, was always telling jokes, you know, class count, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, God damn it, just go to New York and do it. And it just so happened that they had a class, a boot camp class that was performing that night. So these are people that went through 10 weeks of training to be a comedian. And they had a cameraman there, which was good for me because I paid him 20 bucks so he could film it and edit it, and I had a copy of it. But what Jerry and Mr. Harvey basically said, they both were asked to speak at a comedy class. And they basically said, if you're taking this class, you're not a comedian. Any questions? Okay. You can't get taught comedy. It's baked in DNA, number one. And then you got to be willing to test it out on a live audience. So it first starts internally, and then it's external because, listen, comedians, you're always pushing the envelope. That's why we're here. And the other thing that Jerry said on a couple of his shows is, we don't need government to tell us what we can say and what we can't say. The audience will handle it. Yes, right. If you suck, it's instantaneous. You suck. <laughs> okay? Boom. I don't need a government official to tell me what I can say and what I can't say. So you go all the way back in time to when you couldn't swear on stage to when you could swear on stage to you can say anything. Now for me, it's Go be a comedian and don't swear. Try being a comedian and don't swear. Jerry doesn't swear on stage. Now, Bill Cosby, you can't use his name anymore, but too bad. When I grew up, that was my idol. I memorized all his albums at seven, eight years old. The first thing I ever did, sixth grade, picture this, afro, yellow bell bottoms, and I go out and I do Bill Cosby's no routine. Vuba, vuba, ting, right? Yeah. Bring the house down. They're like, who's this six-year-old kid? It was instantaneous. And boom, that was it. That's what I wanted to do. Now, we can get into what happened. But so it starts internally, but you can't keep it there because you got to test to see if it's funny or not. Yeah, right. I think that's what's so interesting for me. I think like every marketer, and every content creator should be listening to stand-up comedians because essentially what we need to understand is what's the audience hearing, right? What are they responding to? What's their perception? We think we know, but you have this incredible ability, this opportunity to get immediate, you know, we're doing polls and, you know, we say social media, social listening, but you have this direct feedback. So what has that taught you? What kind of things has the audience taught you that surprised you? Never underestimate your audience. Look, you're either going to resonate or you're not. Does everybody like Jerry Seinfeld as a comedian? No. Does everybody like 
Robin Williams. You no, know, I mean, a lot of people do. But I don't care whether you're a comedian or whether you're a stand-up or whether you're in business. It's all about finding your voice and finding your audience. As a performer, act because I'm also a professional actor, it's all about finding your voice. And what we mean by finding your voice isn't the tone of your voice. It's who you are to people, how they resonate with what you're saying and what you're doing. Is it connecting? Is it landing? Are you landing with people? And you're not going to. Right. So this is the essential question, right? Is there a conflict between who you are and how it lands? Because you are in this unique position as a stand-up comedian to see them both like in real time, right? Well, you're either good or you suck. <laughs> there ain't anything in between. You know, you either killed it that night or they killed you. Yes. You're live bait. You are you live are bait. You are live bait on that stage. But what's rich about it is the audience came to be entertained. They came to laugh. They came to forget their problems. So first of all, go back to the Romans. The Romans were brilliant. They conquered the planet. And along the way, in order to make sure that the people they conquered didn't rise up and conquer them, they had the gladiators. So they brought in all those people to watch people slaughter each other and go, ah, right? Because they got the catharsis out. Right. And they had the chariot races. Rawr! Right. They had a, there was a place to go to get all that rage out. They'll go back out and build another pyramid or you know, whatever. But they also had the theater because they were smart enough to know at night, we also need to get to the mind and we need to make sure people have a place to have this catharsis, this experience. So actors connect with an audience by taking to a place that they don't go to so they can experience the emotions and feelings of what's happening with those people. Comedians hold up in the light the stupidity of humanity, the absurdity of him. Think of Shakespeare's clowns. Shakespeare's clowns, they're the greatest clowns on the planet. They're also the smartest people. They're winking at the audience going, look at the fool, and the fool is not the clown, it's the king. It's Hamlet, it's Macbeth. It's all those characters that are running around, you know, trying to figure out the relationship and the love and the, the clown is the genius. But yes, so we hold up the mirror. Now, we're going to either do it really well or we're not. You're either going to be willing to look in the mirror and see yourselves and laugh at the humor or we can get into the political side of the nonsense that's happening in the United States of America with all that BS, right? So... This is the safety ground. And what I love about what Jerry is saying in a show is, folks, you need us. Yeah. You need us. You can't eliminate us. We're not going anywhere. You need us because you need to laugh at the craziness that you're in that you can't see. So do you think of yourself more as an actor or a comedian? How do you identify? I'm not a very good actor. I'm a performer. I admire great actors. I've studied acting, I've acted, and I know there'll be people that will say, no, you're a really great actor and you move me in that show. But there's a special quality in great actors to really immerse themselves. And it's not that they become the character, and some really great actors do, right? But they really, they do. They get, they get under the skin of that character. Yeah, so what is the difference between an actor and a performer? You said you're a performer, not an actor. Yeah, an actor doesn't break the fourth wall. 
explain for the audience what that means. So the way I describe it is you go to the theater, you buy a ticket, you know you're going to see the show, the lights come down, and then the show starts and something happens between the actors on stage or the actor on stage that draws you in. Now, Sandy Meisner, I studied the Meisner method, said something brilliant. I had just come back from doing stand-up. It was like 1989, 1990 in New York City at Stand Up New York. It's like one in the morning. Why do people drink that are in the performance world? Because we're so high that drink, smoke, do drugs so you can come down. I don't drink and do drugs, so I, I wasn't coming down. But I'm jacked up. I get back to my apartment, this little room, and I turn the TV set on, and I hear this voice go, acting is living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. And it was like a bolt of lightning went through my heart. And I was like, what? And I turned around to the TV and I was like, what is this? And it was a special on Sandy Meisner who created this, the Meisner method. So Sandy came out of the acting studio with Lee Strasberg and Stella, Agner, uh, Stella Adler. Stella Adler trained, you no, know, Marlon Brando, had all the method acting, you know, why don't you come to see me sooner? Uh. And Lee Strasberg trained Al Pacino. He's actually in The Godfather 2. Lee Strasberg plays Meyer Lansky, the Jewish mobster. And they started the acting studio in the 1920s, and there got to be a point where Sandy said, this is bullshit. This method thing, this internal, this is bullshit. And he left, and he created the Meisner method, which is all about acting as living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. So when you come to the theater and the lights go down, you know it's imaginary. Curtain opens, this is fake. And then what happens you know, he's so moved to tears because those actors are living truthfully moment to moment to moment. And then how does an actor do that? How does an actor create that moment to moment experience night after night after night after night? So you get drawn in. So the fourth wall is the actors never look at the audience and wink at them like Groucho Marx, right? They never break the fourth wall. Now, that's become a really big convention now. There's a lot of shows where the actors break the fourth wall and they use that as a convention. But really great acting never breaks the fourth wall. And you know, as a camera person filming, there's that fourth wall. Right. And so breaking the fourth wall is sort of acknowledging that this is a show within the show. So like, for example, Robin Williams, okay, greatest comedian ever. One of the greatest comedians ever. fact that he did some of the greatest acting in the movies that he did specifically with Matt Damon and what's I'm going to call it? God, my brain is going dead, right? He won the Oscar when he played the therapist to Matt Damon's character. You don't even know which movie I'm talking about. I know of the movie. I'm pretty bad with names. I don't have my phone open in front of me. I look it up, but people know what I'm talking about because he didn't break the fourth wall. And I watched him as he evolved in doing movies and what it took for him to immerse himself. Incredible not break that fourth wall. So I think of myself more as a performer because I'm a good actor, but I want to break the fourth wall. Because of the comedian, I want to reach into people. It makes me a great financial advisor. By the way, I do want to correct, you know, it's funny, you said you sell life insurance. So just for our viewers, so everybody knows, we kind of do it all. We do full financial planning, investment, insurance, you know, whatever you need. But because I trained as an actor, it made me a better financial advisor. It transformed me as a financial advisor. I love this idea. So tell me what you mean by that. So I went into business instead of going to New York and being a starving actor in 1979. 
Should have gone to New York and been a starving actor. Would have been way easier. I did come in through the life insurance business, you know, dialing for dollars. Hi, my name's Charlie Epstein. I'm a, you know, click, click, click. But it wasn't until I decided to go back to acting in 1987, 1988, and then for the next 12 years pursued that dream. But when I started to study the Meisner method, because Sandy said in order to create that experience and be moment to moment, it's not about you. It's about the person that you're engaging with, like right now. So you're listening to what I'm saying so you can respond to it. So it's moment to moment. And I'm listening back. And that's the richness. That's where it happens. That's the shtuckle, the Yiddish, you know, the shtuckle. It's right there in the middle. It's in that gap that hasn't happened. And so even though I know what I'm going to say as an actor to you and you know what you're going to say to me, it's the emotional life that we create and respond to each other that's real, that the audience then attaches themselves to. So all that training turned me inside out and I started to shut up as an advisor and listen to my audience, my clients. Like today, someone comes to me and you know, when you go to a financial advisor or anybody in sales, you've got all these predisposed notions. And the first thing I say to people when they show up is, how can I be of service to you today? And it's like, what? Because I got nothing. You're expecting me to, you know, you should do this and you should, and you're paying too much and, you know, you need to re-diversify your diversification. You're gonna, no, how can I, why are you here? How can I be of service to you today? Let's have a conversation about promise you made to yourself when you were a child and what are you doing now? And why are you working your ass off? And what really? And it's listening for possibility. I think that's so interesting that you've sort of transformed because I think many people think of acting as fake, right? But actually what you're saying is that acting has given you a deeper connection to what's real. Yeah, it's made me more sensitive, more sensitized, more caring, more gracious, more grateful, more interested. Like most salespeople, there's a sales track and they're trying to get you to somewhere. And they ask questions they already know the answers to. So why are you even there? So let me ask you this. One of the things we were saying about kind of the power of, or one of the things that I think is interesting from a kind of messaging point of view about stand-up is this continuous and instantaneous feedback that is really essentially what we all need to know what's effective. But I think sales calls are another place where you're just getting punched in the face all day long, right? No, never means never. It just means not now. Click. I mean, I think you say in your in your documentary, you know, there was a period where it was like 10 calls to get three meetings, three meetings to get, you know, you go through this chain. And so you must figure out, number one, you have to be really comfortable with criticism, with no's and not take it personally. And I would imagine it's a great opportunity to just try all your different techniques and get a really solid understanding of what works. You know, when you're in it, you don't know that you're doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. when you're 21, 22, and 23 and just trying to move out of your parents' basement. But you figured out what worked. What worked? Well, it was the law of numbers to begin with. That formula, 10, 3, 1, and then understanding no never means never. It just means not now. That's my mantra. That's my life's mantra. You know, when I got my commercial agent, for example, and I was auditioning for commercials, I had 60 no's before I booked my first commercial. That's pathetic. And people are like, why do you keep doing it? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like the moth going at the light bulb. I'm going to get in there eventually. Are you a fan of Stephen Pressfield? Who's Stephen Pressfield? 
Oh, am I going to introduce you to Stephen Pressfield? He wrote a book called The War of Art. Okay, cool. Not The Art of War, but The War of Art. And he talks about how many times he submitted a book before he ever sold anything. He wrote the script to Bagger Vance. He wrote okay. uh, a bunch yeah. of, bunch of right. yeah. So no, never means never. It just means not now. Yeah. Because eventually yeah. now is going to show up. So those were those early kind of learning days, you know, feast or famine. I mean, I know you weren't thinking about it in that way, but did you learn at that time making all of those calls? Were there a few essential things that would increase the likelihood that maybe it wasn't 1031, maybe it might be 1041 or 1042? Well, it definitely got it got better. You know, that's cold calling world. You know, then there's the relationship world, and then there's strategic relationships, and then there's strategic partnerships, and then there's multi you know, there's all that that you learn a lot afterwards. But I think the greatest training ground is having to pick up that phone because nobody does it anymore. Right. So what did that teach you? Do you think it taught you anything about what worked? Like, were there consistencies in, you know, the three that you got? Did you do something in those or was it just getting the right people? Just a law of numbers? In the beginning, it was the law of numbers. It's just the law of large numbers. You know, if you stay at it long enough, it's going to happen. And most people don't. In my industry, the failure rate is like, 95% of all advisors fail in the first year, 85 in the second year, and 75 in the third. And I could never figure out if you added those three numbers up, it's more than 100%. <laughs> the important thing you said is, you know, you got to have tough skin. You have to, what people have to realize is my mentor, I had a mentor, so I was lucky. I had a mentor, Hillard Aronson. And without him, I wouldn't have survived because I had somebody to mentor me and talk to. And he said, kid, when you get on the phone, put a smile on your face. And before you dial, say, who's going to be lucky enough to speak to me today? I love that. And that's what I would do. Who's going to be lucky enough? And I would say, these people don't even know me. You're hanging up. You don't even know me, right? I didn't get into the psychology of why did they hang up and why are they upset? Why? It has nothing to do with me. And that is the big lesson, folks. Yes. No matter what you do in life, you have to understand. I try and teach my kids who have not gotten this yet. You haven't a freaking clue what's going on with that person over there. And this is a relationship business anyways. So you're trying to build a relationship with somebody who doesn't even know you. So when you do get in, it's like, wow, wow, how did that happen in the beginning? Until you've built a reputation, certain success, expertise, written books, podcast, right? But in those early days, it's an investigation. But you have to come from the place of, Gee, these people don't even know who I am. I love this. Who's going to be lucky enough to talk to me today? I love that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard how brutal making sales calls is, but I've never heard that line. I love that. Well, great. You cannot control how other people think, feel, eat, fart, shit, fill in the blank. And most people spend their time in their head worrying about what they think somebody's going to think about them or say about them. And they have this conversation in their head and they never get to the person and have the conversation. This is like what we were talking about, about being on camera. You and I talked about this offline when we first met, this idea that the thing that keeps you or others from getting on camera or getting in front of the camera is not, you know, there's this idea like, oh, that guy's egotistical. He's all over. He likes to be on camera. Actually, the person who won't go on camera is the one who's got the ego problem because they're so worried about what other people think about them that they won't put themselves out there. Ego is the enemy of us all. Yeah. It's that voice in your head. 
I want to push back a little bit, though. You must have found that there were things that you said or ways that you had these conversations that worked a little bit better. Well, you know, if I look at an evolution in sales, so in the beginning when you're in sales, it's always product benefit, right? It's that line of if I can show you a better product at a better price with better services at a better fee, blah, blah, you know, can we do business today? So I like to say in the early days, I was an incredible product salesman. So whether it was life insurance when I started or health insurance or whatever for whatever, it was product benefit. And then I think the great crossover is when you forget about the product and the service and you start to dialogue with people about what's important to them in their lives and what really matters. So our business today is all about helping people create a paycheck for life so you can do all the things you desire to do today, not someday, one day. Which I love. That's the whole yield of dreams thing. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about what yield of dreams and what your show is about and what your business is about, because they're all really connected. Yeah. And it's interesting. I used to buy fabricate. Okay. Now I'm the financial advisor. Now I'm the actor. Now that's, and I finally integrated. This is who I am. People say to me today, because I'm 63 and I bat this for 41 years. So now everybody shows up on my doorstep, whether it's existing clients or new clients. And they all say, so Charlie, when are you going to retire? It's pretty interesting. And I look at them and I say, you mean I'm not sitting here with you? My yield of dreams is to do what I love every day of my life until God says, next. <laughs> so sometimes it's having conversations like this with you. Sometimes it's helping people solve their financial dilemmas or, or identify what's important to them in life and how they're going to put their finances together to support what they want or figuring out whatever it might be. And then it's, to me, it's all entertainment. Every day, because people say to me, when I was acting more full-time, they'll say, when was the last time you, know, you, you were acting or you're going to perform? I said, you mean I'm not right now? I mean, it's all a performance. Does that offend people? Do they think that means you're not being honest with them? No, they know, you know, they laugh. Even like someone that gets referred to me. I think because I'm just real. This yeah. is me. You know, it's interesting. You've watched the documentary of the making of Yielded Dreams. I know. And when is that coming out? Well, it's not final, final. But so the show we'll get to, we're looking at a, actually performing the show. We found a space finally, post-COVID. August, September of this year, Northampton wow. Arts Center, Northampton, Mass., where Smith College is, Amherst College, UMass, really great, funky area. So we'll probably, July, and these dates are all move, I'm going to rent a big movie theater, and we'll do a red carpet event, and we'll show the documentary, you know, invited guests, that kind of thing. Then we'll launch the show, and then if you buy a ticket to the show, you get the documentary. So let me jump back, because the audience, although I know what these things are, give us the kind of the, like, what is Yield of Dreams? What is the show? What is the documentary? I have been ruminating for the last three years. So I acted professionally from 1988 to 2001. It was an off-Broadway show, off-off-Broadway show the week before 9-11. 9-11 happened. That's a, we all know that history. But I was actually done acting. I had decided that two days before, in the middle of the rehearsals, I'm done. I was whole, complete, accomplished what I want to accomplish. Then a year later, I launched the 401k coaching program. So for 15 years, I coached financial advisors all over the country, 10,000 of them, got paid millions of dollars, but it was my space. I created my own space. I, I was the producer, the director, the writer, and I got paid way more. 
and I had a huge impact. And then three years ago, I was like, well, I think I'm done with this. Took a little while for me to get undone. And I said to my wife, I want to go back and do stand-up or write a show. And so October of 2019, flew out to La Jolla, California, locked myself in a condo for two days with three comedians, Mike Koenig's Genius and Marissa Brassfield. I had nothing written. I had all these stories in my head like a stand-up, and I performed for three stand-up comics. And at the end of the two days, we had the walls covered, and we had the makings of this show, Yield to Dreams. So Yield to Dreams, it's performance, it's acting, it's stand-up, it's financial theater. It asks the question, what did you want to be when you grew up? What happened? What are you now? Although now we're evolving to what you and I talked about earlier, which is what is the promise you made to yourself as a child? And what happened to that promise? And the promise of Yield to Dreams, if I get it right, is to tell my story, my clients' stories, and my money stories to inspire my audience to keep the promise. I think it makes so much sense because these money stories are such an inherently human part of our lives. I mean, there's so much emotion and like everything is wrapped up in that. And I think we don't address it. I think there's a real gap in the conversation. And you talked about being a comedian, right? And, and holding up that mirror. And it's a place that we are really not comfortable looking at ourselves. It's a place that is like a taboo subject. People don't laugh about their money. No, Jerry, they don't right? talk about their money. Right. So I also tell people my new ministry in life is to ease your pain and suffering about your money. Now, I may do it to get you to laugh about your foibles and your myths about money because people have these intense myths about money. And I think on a personal level, it's a really valuable thing to understand. But the reality is from a advertising marketing value, we are always trying to trigger certain behaviors in the audience, get them to buy our thing, get them to need our thing, get them to think they need our thing, you know, all that stuff. You did a whole podcast on triggers and human behaviors. Yes. I listened to it. You're like my super fan. I love this. So we do have this goal of affecting how people think. Do you think that's possible to do? Well, it's a science. It's an art. All advertising, you know, madmen. So what's the line between, I was going to use the word forced marketing, where you've got all this data and you're playing those notes. And for lack of a better word, natural marketing. So I'll use forced and natural. And I go back to my acting experiences. When I forced my performance, it didn't land. When I pressed, and you know, athletes, right? They'll say that right. too. You know, I didn't win today because I was pressing. I was forcing. I, yeah. was, I was trying to recreate what I did yesterday. So case in point, you're in rehearsals. And by the way, I've done one week stock. You rehearse for six days, a whole show, the crucible, you know, rehearse for six days, perform for five. It's the soap opera of live theater. So you are in this intense space trying to get this show up in six days and it's two in the morning, you know, it's tech rehearsal and you're opening tomorrow and you're all looking at each other and you're going, this sucks. It's never going to happen. And then you open and it's explosive. It's unbelievable. It's raw. It's real. It's everything. And then you do the second night performance and your mind remembers the night before. 
and you try and recreate the night before. And the second night is never good. As a matter of fact, I think when Yield to Dreams goes live, I'm not going to have a second night. I'm going to have an opening night and a third night. Yeah. So I don't know anything about those triggers. I know some, but I, I don't know. I don't have any of that. And I don't want it because it's not natural and real. Yes, I want data and I want to know if people are listening. And, but go back to what you asked me first. What is it about being a stand-up and a performer? It's instantaneous. It's what Jerry said. I don't need the government to tell me whether or not I can say what I can say. The audience will tell me whether or not it was funny. Exactly. Exactly. It was real. It landed. I don't need somebody of people to tell me what I can say and what I can't say. But by the way, we did that in the 50s and 60s, and we killed Lenny Bruce when he was 40. So for me, it's like doing a podcast. It's like, what resonates? What doesn't resonate? How does it resonate? But I don't know the science. You know. I mean, I almost feel like you have, I don't want to say an unfair advantage, but you didn't have to know the science because you learned it. I don't want to say the hard way, but you you found out from years of having a business how to talk to your clients, how to book clients when you need to. Here's the biggest thing I learned. You can't be everybody's friend and not everybody wants you to be their friend and not everybody's going to do business with you. Move on. That's it. It's great. It's all about a relationship. I, look, you and I didn't know each other from Adam. Right. We got on a call together. I think it clicked. Right. I adore you. Right. You know, it's a natural thing. And I don't think about it. I don't like drive around going, why do I like her so much? Yeah. Why do I think she's so smart? It's just because I am so uh, likable and, and brilliant that it's like above all, all statistics and measurement. It's, it's well, pretty simple. Yes, there's that. But also, you're... <laughs> you're a gift to me because you're focusing on something I would never think of. Right. You know, the whole grounded content concept and the bullshit and all that kind of, you know, cause I got a lot of bullshit. I don't know. You know, you'll tell me what it is and what it isn't, but getting back to what you said that I have an unfair advantage. Yeah. Everybody has an unfair advantage. It's, can you play to your unfair advantage? You know, my unfair advantage is the first thing that I say in my show, yield of dreams. I was born with a divine discontent. I came out of the womb and I got my first laugh. They held me up and everybody laughed because <laughs> I was this drippy skinny. My mother tells this, you know, and I got my first laugh and I'm like, okay, well that works. I think that is a great way for us to wrap up, but I want to give you a chance, two things. One, I want you to tell people how to find you. Well, you can come to Dyersville, Iowa, where I'm sitting on the field of <laughs> So you can go to EpsteinFinancial.com if you want to talk to me from a financial point of view. You can listen to my podcast, Yield of Dreams, which is on all the Spotify. I didn't even know I was on Spotify, everything. And if you just want to uh, talk to me, you can email me at Charlie. No, how can you email me? C.D. Epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N, at the401kcoach.com. T-H-E, 401k, like your 401k, coach.com. Parting words of wisdom. So my audience, you kind of know because you've listened to the show a little bit. I don't need to tell you who they are. If there was something you could share with them that you, you think would be valuable. Lighten up. Lighten up. Oh, your people are brilliant. I told you the Brandsmiths. I, I fell in love with them. Connect yeah, me. I will. Uh, they're brilliant. They're so brilliant, right? And they lighten up. Yes. That's what I loved about them so much. You know, they don't take themselves too seriously. And you know what? Most of the people that you've on don't take themselves too seriously. But I think for the listeners, it's like, you know, lighten up. 
but some stuff's going to work. And the other thing is like, you got to experiment. That's what I love about the live theater. That's what I love about stand-up. That's what I love about performing. That's what I love about the... You're experimenting. And you're never there, wherever there there is. Werner Earhart said it best. You know, I'm a... Did the S training in the 1980s and profound impact. This is it. Right here. This is it. There isn't some place to get to. This is it. Live in the moment. You know, Chip Wilson, you heard him say that. Because he used the forum to create Lululemon and the culture and the cult, right? They call it the cult, but the culture. And he said something that was so brilliant. He says, I was never living in the moment. I was never living now. I was always worried about later or how am I going to pay the bill or someday, one day. So I was, I was never living moment to moment. And that's the actor's world. Can you live moment to moment to moment and turn off the monkey mind? But that's also what you do as a financial advisor. You tell people, quit waiting for later. Bingo. This is the healthiest you're ever going to be, folks. So what are you waiting for to spend your money on? And I promise you, there's more. Where everybody's like, oh my God, what if it runs out? You'll make more if you need to. Or as you just said, Tim Ferriss, or you'll need less. And by the way, I'll leave you with this thought, because in acting, less is more. Thank you, Charlie. That was such a fun conversation. I am so grateful. And I think the big takeaways for me were really about learning to stay in the moment and to be present, not to be thinking about where you want to be next. The fact that acting can teach you how to be even more real, even though many of us think of acting as really the definition of being fake. And how Charlie can serve as an example of really narrowing down on your niche, on your message, by finding what is uniquely and truly you. I mean, how many people are taking financial advising and stand-up comedy and putting them together? But it works because it's real and it's grounded. See you next time.